One thing I don't do, I don't drive my car when I'm drinking. I get someone to drive me. Do not drink and drive. It's the stupidest thing. If you drink, just don't drive. Not only are you going to hurt yourself, you may hurt some other person, and you wouldn't want that on your conscience, would you? A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Well, let's just say good evening and let listeners be reminded that you are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. The show is uh, Gray Matters. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. And we're going to do a little uh, World War One show this evening. Uh, World War One, of course, the event that sparked the war was the uh, assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was the crown prince of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in Sarajevo, um, which, of course, uh, hosted the, the Winter Olympics some years ago and was back in the news prominently uh, during the Bosnian uh, the civil wars of the former Yugoslavia, and a uh, Serbian nationalist uh, was behind the assassination. Serbian nationalism had cropped up as a kind of a nascent uh, nationalist movement that was very common throughout Europe. And uh, this well, really, uh, the World War One can be seen as a culmination of all the trends of the modern age and the modern state. Yeah. Uh, the sort of artificial construct countries like Austro-Hungaria uh, were a hodgepodge of subnational groups. Sure. And, you know, we still have that to some extent in other countries like even Belgium. Today, modern Belgium has the Walloons and the Flems. There's a little bit of tension developing there. But uh, nationalism, of course, really rose to prominence uh, as a sort of an ideological construct in the 19th century when countries like Germany and Italy which we think of as being centuries old, uh, really are new countries. And they sort of coalesced in this movement that we call nationalism uh, that, of course, Albert Einstein once denounced nationalism as an infantile disease. Yeah, and it's interesting. Uh, I, I was rereading a book by A.J.P. Taylor, an eminent Oxford uh, historian, whose origins of the Second World War, by the way, I would highly recommend, but this is a book called From Sarajevo to Potsdam, which is essentially about the uh, the two wars combined. And in his uh, beginning uh, chapter, he notes, and this is just an interesting point to remember, he says when the war started, there were actually only two republics in Europe, France and Portugal. Switzerland was technically a confederation. Mm-hmm. And the remaining powers were essentially constitutional monarchies or outright monarchies. And uh, basically everybody of the major powers uh, were involved in the war uh, from the get-go, uh, with the exception of Italy. And it's interesting that he notes uh, in his preface, he says, Europe dominated the world. He's talking about European culture and uh the uh, development of uh, the Industrial Revolution, m- modern forms of technology, and of course, uh, World War One occurring and starting in 1914, is uh, not unlike our own era today in terms of the fact that uh, technology was rapidly changing. Um, modern uh, agriculture, 
uh, industrial farming was uh, replacing the so-called family farm, and more and more people were living in cities. As he points out, Europeans tended to dress alike. And he notes that three European powers, France, Great Britain, and Russia, controlled 80% of the world's surface. Three European powers, France, Germany, and Great Britain, had half of the world's industry and half of its international trade. And then he wryly notes that Siam, which of course is a modern-day Thailand, was about the only country in the world which did not escape domination by Europeans at one time or another. Uh, this, of course, in reference to colonialization throughout uh, much of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, South America, etc. And he even, in his analysis, points out that America was essentially a European civilization that had been mainly uh, settled by uh, French, Germans, and uh, British, Scottish. And the ideals of the Enlightenment, you know, the Dutch, enshrined yeah. in uh, mm -hmm. the U.S. Constitution and governing documents. Um, of course, Germany came late to the colonial party uh, in which the world was divided up. Uh, there's a famous uh, Congress in Berlin, I believe, where they all the powers got together to sort of carve up Africa. Sure. Uh, Germany got a few small sections of that, uh, modern-day Namibia, um, some other pieces in the south and east of Africa. Uh, but uh, their lack of uh, clout in the resource management department um, is part of the reason they were outward looking. Outward looking and of course they had um, staked their own claims for instance in China with a rather robust uh, industrial trading uh, situation and they were late to that game as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, of course the French were very active in Indochina as the American government discovered in the 1950s uh, at one point uh, during, for our act, actual active involvement in the Vietnam War, we were financing the French involvement in the French-Vietnamese War uh, following World War II to the tune of one-third to half of the total war expenses. And of course, we saw recently that Barack Obama announced in a press conference that we are not putting boots on the ground in Iraq and he wisely uh, made the distinction, I think, between the problems of what's going on in Iraq as we speak to the point that these were political problems that need to be solved by the people of Iraq, not military problems that America can solve from 4,000, 5,000 miles away. Well, interestingly, in World War I, it was these entangling alliances. And uh, Germany, of course, uh, sparked World War I in an active sense by invading Belgium. Uh, this led to outrage in Great Britain. And it's rather fascinating. There's been a sort of bevy of new books out analyzing World War I from the perspective of who was to blame. Was it German uh, um, aggression or was it British foolishness? And there are even prominent British historians that are claiming the British overreacted to Germany's invasion of Belgium. Uh, of course, there was a considerable amount of propaganda regarding um, war atrocities. But World War I, of course, saw amazing things like uh, civilians being bombed for the, for the first time in terms of air power. 
air uh, power's emergence the, as a significant uh, component of warfare. The use of tanks, for yep. instance, uh, was uh, really uh, for the first time uh, in battle, and it was this sort of relentless, stalemated trench warfare. And mechanized warfare. And mechanized, and of course, poison gas, yep. uh, the gas masks. And the other thing that was very interesting about World War I from a cultural perspective was it was the beginning of the first uh, movement of pacifism. There were active left-wing artists in particular and intellectuals that opposed the war for the first time uh, intellectually. And the pacifism developed as a concept in response to the horrors of war. Uh, this was lar largely led by uh, intellectuals like uh, Henri Marcuse and uh, Siegfried Sassoon in Britain. And uh, many of the fallen British soldiers, there was even a, a poetry movement following World War I in Great Britain regarding the horrors of war, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, a very famous novel to come out of World War I. A German novel. Uh, anti-war novel great movie um one of my favorite anti-war movies of stanley kubrick's uh body of works the paths of glory a fascinating movie about the problems of and the reality of trench warfare this mo movie actually dealt more with the problems of cowardice and uh the french uh positions on that issue there were many frenchmen that uh <clears throat> were actually executed during the war for cowardice. This uh, sort of uh, wretched subject has kind of come up recently regarding Bo Bergdahl right. abandoning his post. And while we still don't know all of the facts in this particular case, it's interesting to note that in World War II, there were 58,000 Americans that deserted. So this is not something unusual. Or political. I mean, it's a stress thing. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's a panic thing, and it's uh, I need I need to get out of here. And of course, it's the shell shock problem. Yes. Uh, we've talked, uh, you know, this post traumatic stress syndrome, which is of course beleaguering our troops, in uh, by the thousands here in the United States from uh, extensive combat in both Iraq and Iran, and well, Iraq and Iran—that's a Freudian slip. Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Iran may be involved. <laughs> Hopefully not. But, uh, <laughs> Soon enough, yeah. but it, it does sound like Obama is at least not going to put, quote, boots on the ground wisely. I, I don't think at this point the United States can solve Iraq's problems since Iraq itself was an artificial result. The borders of Iraq were an artificial result of World War One. Indeed, as are many of the problems that we're still facing in the world today, the borders in the modern Middle East. Uh, the hodgepodge state of Yugoslavia, which so famously unraveled in the 90s, um, as well as uh, the pursuit of oil. Uh, resource management was also something that the uh, Western states were, by World War II, of course, that'll be all locked up. Um, as far as Kubrick's film Paths of Glory is concerned, it's uh, important to remember that that film was banned in France for... 20, 25, 30 years uh, after it was made uh, until it was allowed to be shown in France. Um, it's a pretty brutal depiction of 
the failures of the uh, French military to recognize the facts on the ground and uh, their misuse of their own men. Yeah. Which uh, John Mosier's book, The Myth of the Great War, uh, which is a military history, it sort of looks at the battles and the tactics and the uh, weaponry. His book is fascinating because it reveals that uh, the Germans won the battles. They did. And would have won the war. Uh, if the Americans hadn't gotten involved. France uh, routinely threw thousands of men into the teeth of superior German uh, artillery fire. Uh, the Germans had better tactics. The French were using basically 19th century uh, tactics. Oh, we're going to get the high ground here and nobody can pass. Well, the Germans had a piece of the high ground, and so between the two of them, they blew the top off of an entire ridge. Mm -hmm. um, and the Germans still retained enough high ground that the French could never supply their troops through this way. Well, this was an old-fashioned approach uh, with modern technology. Uh, so the, the reason that America really got involved in the war was not so much the Lusitania sinking, which of course was tragic and terrible, uh, but because of the staggering amounts of money that uh, Great Britain and France had been advanced. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. Obviously, the, the uh, American involvement in the World War I was, was late. We, we didn't actually get into the war until April of 1917. Um, but it's fascinating to discover, uh, and I'm reading here from a book by Robert H. Farrell, Wo Woodrow Wilson and World War I, 1917 to 1921, which actually isn't too much about the actual war. It's more about the <laughs> complex problems involving the Versailles negotiations and what was going on at the home front, et cetera, et cetera. But here is an idea of why the United States eventually did get uh, involved on the Allied side. Uh, obviously, there were some small contributing factors like the sinking of the Lusitania, uh, the U-boat uh, sinkings uh, in the Atlantic of U.S. merchant uh, marine ships and that sort of thing. We were supplying the Allies, and uh, as the British attempted, I mean, as the Germans attempted to blockade Great Britain. Also, there's the infamous Zimmerman letter, <laughs> in which the uh, Germans attempted to get Mexico to declare war on the United States in exchange for uh, them getting parts of Southwest United States, parts of back territory that we won in the uh, Mexican-American War back in the 19th century. But economics is at the heart of the matter. In 1914, trade with the Allies climbed from 754 million to 2.7 billion. Trade with Germany during the same period dropped from 345 million to 2 million. <laughs> so there is a definite difference between the number 2 million and 2.7 billion. And while Wilson, early in the war, tried to strenuously remain neutral, it became quite clear that the United States would have to um, <clears throat> uh, go in to get the chestnuts out of the fire, as they say, that the war loans and that the, uh, the, the these uh, trades, by the way, during World War I were not like Lend-Lease, where the United States... Uh, pretty much granted aid to Great Britain and Russia, uh, outright aid. Uh, these were basically commercial deals in which, at the end of the war, countries were expected to pay their bills and pony up the money. But obviously there was a certain amount of lending involved in finance, and uh, 
World War I, of course, saw some civilian casualties, but nowhere near the scale of World War II, where civilians were deliberately targeted um, primarily by, by, all the, sides. by all sides, but primarily by the Germans, and certainly by Russians in their uh, counteroffensive uh, following uh, the battles at Kursk and Stalingrad. Uh, but uh, these these battles that were indecisive militarily in these in these trench warfares were horrific uh, human slaughter, as you mentioned. Yeah, and uh, unprecedented in terms of what uh, human civilization scale. had seen yeah. in the past. Well, it's really as if you know the advance of human civilization, the progress of the industrial age, uh, sort of blows up in the face of humankind when all of these advanced technologies are used to uh, cause as much destruction sure. as possible uh the use of chemical gas and so forth it's just it's insane to contemplate that grown men uh, thought this was a rational thing to do i mean and uh, flamethrowers there's another, another amazing new, new weapon that was course, used on the, the ground gatling gun uh you know occurred uh emerged during the u.s uh, civil war uh, but the modern machine gun, capable of much faster and, and you know more regular firing than the Gatling gun, just it mechanized slaughter. Uh, and of course, intelligence gathering was still somewhat crude and primitive. Uh, radio had not yet emerged. There was telegraph, of course. Uh, but what really emerges from uh, John Mosher's book is the extent to which the British and the French uh, military high commands sort of turned a blind eye to the egregious failures that continued to mount. I've got uh, a note here. Um, and it's interesting, too, because both those governments, by the way, changed hands during World War I. Indeed, yep. There, there were actual, you don't, you, you know. Which is very unusual. Very unusual, and you didn't see that, for instance, in World War II once, uh, once Churchill was named Prime Minister of Great Britain. Churchill was deposed uh, by the voters uh, while Potsdam, the uh, post-World War II negotiations were going on, um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, Stalin and, and Roosevelt, of course, died in office, but uh, it, it, America was very reluctant to vote Roosevelt out of office, right. although uh, his closest election, ironically, was 1944. Uh, the other elections were all pretty much landslides, but... Uh, you don't yeah. see war. You don't see war leaders change hands like that very often. Yeah. But it's interesting that it happened in both France and Great Britain, and certainly, um, you know, the aftermath of World War One in terms of the uh, replacement, and of course, you know, the Bolshevik Revolution occurred dur during World War One. Again, World War One is the key event of. We could call it the postmodern world, I suppose. That's the, the climax of, of modernism. Uh, and all the great artists and novelists who are working at the time, you know, the James Joyce, the Picassos, you know, these sorts of writers, Stravinsky, uh, that's the peak of modernism. Uh, but the ugliness of the war was so shocking and devastating that, I mean, societies literally were changed forever. And even the uh, sort of head-in-the-clouds uh, military elite uh, were forced to realize uh, the smell of their own farts, if you <laughs> pardon a rather crude metaphor, uh, because all through the war, the British and the French high commands insisted things are going great, things are going fine, 
We just need to win the next battle. Similar uh, to the way American leaders diluted the American public during the uh, Vietnam, Vietnam War, exactly. always telling us we're winning on the battlefield. Right. Or now there's this new revisionism, by the way, in which uh, uh, conservative historians are arguing that America won Vietnam and won in Vietnam. It was it was the media and the peace activists at home that caused the defeat. That we were winning the military aspects of the war. Well, indeed, we were at a sort of technical, empirical, numerical. We were uh, killing more people than they were. We yeah. were killing far more people. Our kill ratios were yeah. were ten to one. But the problem was was that civil wars, as uh, we uh, were sadly awakened to in Indochina, are not won always militarily. There is a political component on the ground, and we're seeing this replayed here now in the uh, tragic situations that are ongoing in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Well, these are all... To some extent, Egypt. And, and these are all, you know, civilizations and, and areas of the world that are definitely in flux. Yeah. Well, uh, I just want to read this short passage from British com uh, military commander Bernard Montgomery in a letter dated March 1916. He wrote this. He, of course, was later famous for being a great... World War Two, Mon Monty, the desert, yeah, the desert commander who uh, went up against Rommel. Harry was probably a, a colonel or something. Yes, uh, he writes, uh, March nineteen sixteen. Things are going quite well for the French at Verdun, and they are not the least bit anxious about it. Uh, it is part of our policy to let the Germans beat themselves to death against the stone wall. The Germans have lost enormously, and they can't afford to. Well. That's what he wrote in March 1916. After the war, he went back and added this annotation to that very letter. My views on the fighting at Verdun were not in any way in accordance with the true facts. Right. Uh, the French lost thousands of yeah. men at Verdun. Yep. And the British lost very few. Uh, and that was, uh, Mosher has a body count at the end here, and it's staggering to look at battle after battle. Uh the French were killed in uh, proportions of like five to one for sure. every German. Uh, part of the reason, again, is because of the superior German firepower, superior tactics. Awkwardly, the uh, key components used for making the big artillery shells, uh, France no longer had access to the chemicals because they had acquired the chemicals uh, necessary to make these large armaments uh, and the, the exploding shells uh, before the war from Germany. Right, because so. ger German chemical companies were, were known for... G. Farben. <laughs> yeah, that's a big business. Bayer. <laughs> on and on. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, it's interesting that when the United States finally entered the war, uh, it's, it's... I mean, I had, I had some idea of the numbers, but it's amazing that uh, almost 24 million men uh, signed up for the draft. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, they had a lottery system. Uh, there were some famous uh, uh, sort of photographs of Wilson even picking out a number out of the blindfolded, out of the out of the bin, out of the bin, and that two million Americans served in the French theater because that's essentially where the war was being fought. Uh, obviously, America's entry into the war was decisive, and uh, Pershing, General Pershing, who was sort of the uh, Allied commander on the American side, was very dubious and skeptical of the British-French uh, military mm -hmm. uh, advice. He sort of ignored it <laughs> to his credit. Indeed. 
And uh, eventually, of course, the, the, you know, it was exhaustion. Let's also remember that by 1915, it was quite clear that London had, had been replaced finally and without any question by New York City as the key to international finance that the British uh, and French, for that matter, both essentially bankrupted themselves fighting World War I. And the, the Germans, of course, signed a separate peace treaty with Russia. Uh, the Bolshevik vote, by the way, on the Brest-Litovsk uh, peace treaty was seven to six in the Politburo. <laughs> uh, so one wonder, they, they were hardly unanimous in their decision. There were a couple of abstentions. And, of course, Russia ceded uh, some rather significant amounts of territory. Uh, in the separate peace deal. This, of course, led to alienation between the so-called allies and uh, the Bolshevik government, which led to further problems, including America uh, sending ex expeditionary forces into the Russian Civil War. Up to Archangel, yeah. Archangel in support of the White uh, Army. Here and there, there was another uh, dispatch somewhere. Archangel's well known around here because there was a rather large contingency of Michigan mm -hmm. soldiers that were dispatched to Archangel, presumably because we're familiar with the cold weather. <laughs> of course, the quite cold there. The cold weather in Archangel is very different from the state of Michigan, <laughs> I dare say. But it was an example of uh, some of the folly of of of, Rose, of uh, Woodrow Wilson. It's also fascinating that Woodrow Wilson had this idealistic perspective about World War One. We entered the war to quote make the world safe for democracy. We entered the war to end war, and his idealistic uh, fourteen points were were were. Uh, I think far thinking kinds of concepts, if you go back and you look at them. But, of course, the United States never ratified the Versailles Treaty. Wilson ran into heavy Republican opposition uh, in the form of the powerful chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee at the time, Henry Cabot Lodge, and others. It led to American isolationism. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Warren G. Harding's uh, slogan for the 1920 election was a return to normalcy. So America kind of uh, dropped the 14 points. So we, never we never entered the League of Nations, which was a bold attempt to resolve uh, international disputes using diplomacy, but it never had the enforcement element that uh, was necessary for it to work. Of course, there was all sorts of territory that was exchanged that led to uh, further recriminations and that led to contributing factors of World War II. The Ottoman Empire was carved up by British and French imperialists in a kind of an agreement that was made even before the war was even over. The Sykes-Picot uh, Agreement. Well, and the British were so duplicitous that they promised everything to everybody uh, because, of course, the Balfour Declaration was an agreement to create a Jewish homeland. Yeah, 1917. Mm -hmm. uh, it, ironically, uh, this was in return for Chaim Weizmann's uh, contributions to the British uh, war effort for his development of certain poison gases. That's one of history's more startlingly cruel ironies, I, I believe. 
Um, and I believe it's well established that some of the first civilians ever bombed were in Baghdad by the British. That is correct. Yeah, the British Air Force. Uh, so the British promised Palestine to the Zionist movement. They also promised Palestine to the Arabs on the ground, as is illustrated in uh, the David Lean film, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, and then they made the separate agreement with France, the Sykes-Picot Act, to actually carve it up in the way that we now know it today. So uh, not a good dealing partner. <laughs> well, and one of the things I, I have to admit, I'm not what I would call a super expert on World War One. I. I know much more about World War II. But it's very fascinating in some of the books that I've been reading over the past couple of years how uh, much more reliable the German documents are than either the British or American documents. Mm -hmm. uh, the Germans, of course, were the Nazis in World War II. Uh, they were the uh, most wicked people to ever inhabit the planet Earth. There's no question about this. Uh, they have open documents that reveal that they planned on exterminating 40 to 70 million people in uh, Eastern Europe. This was basically their idea of uh, clearing out uh, these... Uh, former parts of the so-called Central European powers of all Slavs and all Jews. It's unmistakable. But as my dad has pointed out, the Germans kept very reliable records, and they didn't burn them, and they didn't hide them, whereas the British and American records mm -hmm. are suspiciously missing in key areas. Or and the French redacted. documents are filled with huge omissions. Just you know, leave it out. The, the, the infamous document that you get f through FOIA gives you a couple of sentences and then a lot of black Sharp, ink. You know, magic marker. Reep, reep, reep. It looks like a Picasso painting in black. And it's this sort of duplicity. Of course, the British have kept a lot of their World War II documents secret because of all the Nazi sympathizers mm. uh, in, in high-ranking positions. There's um, more and more evidence, by the way, that Edward VIII was forced to abdicate. Not because he was marrying Wallace Simpson, a divorce, American divorcee, but uh, his pro-German uh, beliefs were uh, becoming apparently rather embarrassing. And uh, it's to the credit that, uh, Wood, uh, that uh, Churchill was appointed leader of Great Britain after the French fell so easily to the uh, Nazi invasions of World War II. And, of course, part of the reason they fell so easily was because, again, their strategies, their defensive strategies, were way behind the times. Uh, they were still thinking along World War I terms when they said, oh, we'll build the Maginot Wall, and the Germans will never be able to get through it. Well, they went around it. It was easy to do. And France fell in a couple of days. Yeah, and they probably, of course, German engineering was always a tad superior to the French. Uh, one of their problems, and needless to say, it was this uh, this territory, Alsace and Lorraine, that was a resource-rich, continuing area of dispute between uh, the French and the Germans. The Franco-Prussian War allowed the Germans to take this territory. Mm -hmm. The French got it back. Rich in coal and uh, metal ore. Yeah, and the French got it back following World War One, and then uh, this was one of the sort of casus bellies that Hitler used to get it back for the Germans in World War Two, And needless to say, another area of, uh, of uh, territorial dispute between those two countries was the so-called Rhineland that Germany uh, actually occupied in 1936 in defiance 
of the, the League of Nations. And, of course, the League of Nations was powerless to do anything. Uh, nobody uh, stuck their neck out too far. Uh, pro letters of protest were uttered, but this was the sort of opening gambit that Adolf Hitler used to realize, well, if I can do this, I can... Annex the Sudetenland. Take uh, Austria, Anschluss. Anschluss. 